Hey, yo, welcome to another episode of the most authentic and nuanced holistic health and fitness podcast hosted by your favorite crunchy strength and conditioning coach. I'm Kelsey Moore, and today's topic is animal-based nutrition. What the heck that even means, why I care about it, why I made it the second pillar of my company, Moore and Company, and what things I strive for that fit within that model. And we're going to talk about what it's not, why it's not going to be dogmatic, And I'll also be going over my nourishing pyramid that I go over a lot on social media. I go over that with my clients and with my consultations, and it helps me prioritize my food needs and taking steps forward to fulfill my food sourcing convictions. Awesome. Okay. We have a lot to go over today. And it's just me again. I have so many good guests coming. Super excited about it. I have one of my old athletes that I coached at UNC. She's amazing. She's going to be on the podcast talking about the highest level of collegiate athletics, especially in female collegiate athletics. I have one of my bridesmaids, um, Jesse Pung, who also works in collegiate athletics, but on the administrative side, she is amazing. She competed with me in track and field in college. That's how we originally met at Liberty University. I've got my running coach scheduled. I've got my chiropractor scheduled and I have a fertility nutritionist that's going to come on. So I've got a lot of people lined up, pretty excited about it. But today we're going to talk about one of my loves and um, just one of the pillars. Love it. Animal-based nutrition. But first we're going to start off um, with just giving you guys an update of my new year's resolution because everyone likes to make new year's resolutions. I think there's like this new wave of people that are like anti-resolution because it's like, no, you're perfect the way you are. No, you don't need to feel guilty or, you know, have shame around these areas of your life. And while I can understand that to an extent, I don't say that that resonates with me completely. So I have made a new year's resolution and that is going to be pertaining to my home, pertaining to my house and my home life. I am a, I am to a fault, a go-getter in the sense of, I like to do new things. I get excited about my new projects. I get excited for people that are doing new projects, but on the flip side of that, I can definitely neglect very simple home tasks. I definitely let dishes pile up. I let laundry pile up. I let dog hair pile up. I just let it pile up because I'm like, you know what? I, I mean, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. It's like, okay, in the crunchy space, it's like, I'm okay living my life, like not wearing deodorant, but I can't have the expectation that other people in my life will also not want to wear deodorant. That's kind of a weird analogy for my home, but it's kind of like how I live. It's like, I'm okay sitting at the table with knowing that there's dishes in my sink but maybe my husband doesn't like that. Not that I feel pressure from him necessarily, but it's just like in general, it's like, Kelsey, okay, we understand like you don't feel the need to be like a psycho about cleaning your house, but you're on the other end of the spectrum and you could probably put some structures in place to keep a good cleaning schedule. So my main New Year's resolution is to go to bed every single night with no dishes in the sink. I know, I feel like that uh, should already be a given, but it's not. So that's an achievable goal for me. It is um, already testing my patience in the evening, but I have not missed a day yet. So I'm pretty excited about it. I have also ordered a whiteboard magnet fridge weekly calendar that I can plan out some of my meals and have my husband and I be on the same page so he can see it as well. I've also made like a weekly, monthly, and 
quarterly cleaning schedule for my house. And I am very motivated by lists. So I, this, I don't find this very overwhelming, but some people may find it overwhelming to have all of these lists, but I find it encouraging to move forward. I posted it on my Instagram and I was like thinking that people would think that I set myself up for failure with all of these schedules, but I actually got a lot of positive feedback and a lot of women were like, no, you can totally do this. It'll save you a ton of time. It'll give you a lot of peace in your home. I'm all for it. So that's my new year's resolution. I'll keep you guys updated. I am excited about it. Um, training updates, uh, per usual, you guys already know I'm training for something big, hopefully in May running a lot. I'm in my runner girl era. Um, obviously still strength training because that's one of the pillars of my life, but my main focus is going to be running for the next couple of months. And today I actually have my very first track workout which is crazy. I had been doing some on and off track workouts just by myself, <clears throat> excuse me, by myself. But this is the first track workout that I have planned from my actual running coach. And so I'm excited about it. I have a one mile warm up, six, 400 meter runs, which is a one lap around the track, but I'm increasing my speed throughout each of those six intervals. I have a two minute walking rest after each one. And then I have a two mile, <clears throat> sorry, I have something in my throat. And you guys know I'm not going to edit this podcast because that's too hard for me to figure out. So you guys are going to get me coughing. At the very end, I have a two-mile heart rate zone to cool down at the end. So just a nice little jog, get my legs flushed out. Um, yeah, that's where we're sitting. Okay, today we're talking about animal-based nutrition, what the heck it is, why I love it, how I got to this conclusion. And that's where we're going to start. How did I come to this conclusion? I did already post on my social media a couple weeks ago that when you are traditionally educated through a bachelor's and a master's in exercise science, you get some nutrition curriculum, but it's obviously fueled by conventional medicine. Um, I did have to take a lot of courses on like how exercise is affected or how your physiology is affected by medicine or affected by food or affected by nutrition or chronic disease and all of these things. That is something that I studied, but I always found that fad diets where you're cutting out food groups, but also probably then having to take supplements to counteract the loss of nutrients that you're getting from cutting out certain food groups. Found I found that very elitist and I found it non-sustainable. And I also started realizing that that wasn't stewarding. If I felt this deep conviction to like steward the things that I have, aka I'm trying to steward my home now, you know, with my new year's resolution, I'm trying to steward my body. I'm trying to steward my friendships and yada, yada. If I'm trying to steward those things, how come I'm just going to the grocery store, not knowing my, where my food is coming from, cutting out food groups, and then supplementing with expensive supplements to counteract that. Like that just seemed like a merry-go-round of money, a merry-go-round of like, elitism because I'm paying for all this stuff. And again, coming out of my undergrad, I did start selling Advocare Supplements, which is a supplement company that does all the stuff that you would normally think a supplement company would do, mainly weight loss, fat loss, you know, different kits that you can buy where you have appetite suppressants, um, protein powders, multivitamins, they obviously sell their most popular thing is going to be Spark, which looking at it now is a highly caffeinated drink and that is marketed towards children. I remember taking Spark as a child and being in like middle school because my parents 
purchase Avocare. So that's how I knew about it. Um, nothing against my parents. Everyone's just making the decisions with the information they had at the time, just like me trying to sell it after college and not really knowing my convictions at the time. So I started doing that. You guys already know I went through this holistic initiation story of getting on hormonal birth control because I didn't know any better. Had some serious side effects with short-term memory loss, got off the pill, started figuring things out. I started cutting toxins from my life. I started filtering my water. And when you start doing that, that is like a gateway. I feel like changing out your deodorant is a gateway to figuring out big food, big medicine, big ag, these huge sectors of the quote-unquote government that may not be all that they're chalked up to be in regards to your quote unquote safety. So I just started learning about, you know, if I'm going to be a lover of skills and my original Instagram account before Heyo Morinko was living simple learning skills because I am obsessed with learning skills. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to learn where my food came from. I'm going to learn how to make my own bread. I'm going to try this year. I'm going to try to do more fermentation, like sauerkraut and fermented vegetables and stuff like that preserving food, learning how to garden. I've, I, this year I really want to learn how to hunt. And if that's what I'm going to do, then, um, that's just kind of this step forward. And I started learning about how food should be grown. How should we be eating? And, um, throughout that process, you know, you run into people that are really dogmatic about their food styles. Everyone's pretty confused about food on the internet. You run into people who are super dogmatic about food styles. So you run into vegans and then you think about that. You run into vegetarians. You think about that. You run into Paul Saladino and liver King, and you run into all these people that have really harsh stances on food. And you ask the basic questions. Does this meet the needs financially of someone who lives in poverty? And if not, then maybe that should be reconsidered because food is food. Everyone should have food or have the ability to grow their own food or make their own food to some extent. Um, if you're cutting out whole food groups, then you're going against the very nature of human society of the hunter gatherer. So for example, if you take carnivore, for example, like harsh carnivore, where you're cutting out fruits or vegetables and you're cutting out an entire section of food then you're going against like the thousands and thousands of years of humans cultivating land and cultivating food. And you're kind of saying that's all for nothing. Or you're saying that food grown or cultivated is only for the animals and you're only going to eat the animals. That seems wrong to me. That seems like there's a, there's a logical hole there. I also think that if you look at the human body and how it was designed you understand that your brain runs off of carbohydrates. Your muscles run off of carbohydrates. We like to sprint as humans. We like to run. All of those metabolic processes that happen have to take carbohydrates to be used. Yes. Does your body have a process to convert fat back into carbohydrates to be used? Yes. Is it very efficient? No. So it's, it's just interesting to think about, you know, you want to have this very realistic picture of how your body works. How should we be eating? Should we track our food? Should we not track our food? What are all these things we got to think about? And today I'm going to do my absolute best to iron out what I think of food. And I'm going to miss some holes and I'm probably going to slip up. So please offer me some grace from here on out as I'm trying to describe all of these things. But 
that's kind of where I came to my conclusion. It's like, what are the things that should be the pillars of my food ideology? And um, how do I, how do I try to replicate that for my clients? Okay. Moving on. I kind of already hit on it, but what is animal-based nutrition? Animal-based nutrition strives to use the natural life cycle as a guide for cultivating, preparing, eating, and preserving food, seeking the most nutrient dense in both macronutrient and micronutrient. I made the definition. That is the Kelsey Moore definition of what I believe is animal-based nutrition. I'm going to read it again, just so we can all savor the flavor here. Using the natural life cycle, life and death, as a guide for cultivating, preparing, eating, and preserving food, seeking the most nutrient dense in both macronutrients and micronutrients. And within that sentence, using the natural life cycle, as humans, we have the ability to be ethical human beings. We have the ability to zoom out and look at the environment, to have a a sense of consciousness and a a thought process and emotions behind what we're doing, whereas the rest of the animal kingdom does not have that ability. They work purely off of instinct. So if we have the ability to cultivate, prepare, eat, preserve, and we have the ability to be ethical, why not be ethical? That's what I say. I think as humans, especially if you're a Christian, you understand that we were given dominion over the earth to cultivate it, to steward it, to love things in our lives because God gave it to us. And that should be our driving factor for why we should care about where we get our food from. Those are the ethics. Okay. Another angle of this is it's supposed to mimic the hunter-gatherer style. I went on the internet. I know, the internet. And I was trying to find, just to be devil's advocate, I was trying to find an ancient civilization that was a pure gatherer ancient society, meaning they did not eat meat at all, meaning that they did not probably use animal products in any sort. Um, They did not have the hunter side of, um, they did not have the hunter side of the hunter gatherer symbiotic relationship. So that would to today be relative to like vegans or vegetarians. And then I also tried to go on the other side where I tried to look up a society or an ancient civilization or a third world country idea, tribal community that was a purely hunter group of people could not find that either. So we do have this understanding that from the beginning of time, we have been hunter gatherers as humans meaning that we have hunted animals to eat them, to use them, and we have gathered berries, fruits, vegetables, prepared them in in traditionally relevant ways to that particular society. That could be uh, different things all around the world, but they were uh, paralleling how they live their life. So, for example, if you lived near the Mediterranean, you probably ate a lot of fish. Whereas if you didn't live near the sea, but you lived near Buffalo, then probably you ate Buffalo and gathered berries. So I'm not, I don't want people thinking I'm just talking about cows. I'm just talking about being a rancher. I'm just talking about, you know, pasture raised chicken and pork. No, 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 no. We need to zoom out across the world. How are we preparing both the hunter style of eating 
and the gatherer of style of eating and why they work together. That's what I want to do. Okay, next is <clears throat> you take that hunter-gatherer style where, where people and humans were just walking around trying to hunt as many animals as they could. They could provide for their, for their group of people. The, generally, sometimes, most of the time, women were the gatherers, so they went out and looked for berries. They knew where to find berries. They started cultivating the ground. We started moving into an agrarian way of living, meaning that we are depending on agriculture and cultivating the land. Humans started to take their tribe or their group of people and settle down into one permanent location, which meant that they started building more permanent structures. They started having uh, city-like processes like waterways and roads and trade routes and things. And they had to learn because they were no longer moving like gypsies, one place from another to another to another, which was a natural form of like rotational grazing for their animals or their livestock or their animals that no longer were doing that. They were domesticating animals. They were trying to stay in one spot, maintaining a stationary location. They had to learn how to mimic nature, but on their own like stationary section of land. So they had to learn, humans had to learn what was the natural world doing? Okay. They had to learn that like, hmm, manure was stomped into the ground by particular animals. And then that helped stimulate the growth of plants. And then animals ate the plants. We killed the animals, ate the animals. We put the animals back in the ground, uh, nutrient-dense soil, rain came, more plants, more animals, yada, 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 right? Circle of life, the, cy the cycle of life. <clears throat> so as we learned how to cultivate the land in a stationary location, we learned how to do proper rotational grazing with animals, meaning that we took our livestock, we moved them from one plot of land to the next because they trimmed that grass. They ate that grass to an appropriate level, which stimulated the grass to grow even more. They put their manure in, this, in the ground, cultivating a better, more biodiverse soil with bugs and birds and everything that that um, pulls in. We also learned how to do rotational crops which if you look in the natural world, like you grow certain crops during the winter and you grow other crops during the summer. We learned how to preserve water and do waterways and, and do, uh, what are they called when you put your little rain bucket out? We learned how to do all those things. And we learned the symbiotic relationship between plants and animals. So the big thing is like, as humans, we had to learn to cultivate the land, which when we learned how to do that on a larger scale, that is what boomed our population from several million people to now several billion people. So you just continue to do that and do that and do that. And up until the 1940s and 1950s, America was primarily an agra agrarian society. People were uh, mainly working in agriculture. Now we have less than 1% of the American population living in agriculture. I think as typical conservatives or even people that live in like this homesteading, homemaking, crunchy space, we can oftentimes demonize the big, big G government for like subsidizing food and, you know, uh, pumping food into areas that actually are poisoning people. And then, we're, then they're, you know, forcing medications on them. And then we can have these like huge ideas of the big G government. But the reality is, is this is a hot take, but like, one big factor in us being a powerhouse during the world wars was because 
the government subsidize small local farmers to produce more food for the troops and for the economy. So it worked. It, it worked in the world wars. But once you start subsidizing people with money after wartime, you're, you're really not going to pull that money from those farmers at that point because then your economy would tank and people have, are now depending on that money. So that just grew like a weed out of control. And so now the government subsidized everything. And that is one of the main issues in our food system nowadays. But we can't necessarily demonize the big G government overall because the intentions at the very beginning of it, subsidizing farmers to create more food with the incorporation in with with the uh, with the inclusion of synthetic fertilizers, synthetic pesticides, glyphosate, all these things that did make our crop boom. We did. We were able to sustain more people and we did become a powerhouse economy after that. So let's have a little bit more of a nuanced idea. OK, can we do that, please? OK. Let's uh, continue to zoom out globally. What does it look like to have an animal based idea and food system? I don't want you again to think just red meat, pasture-raised chicken and pork. Right. Which is which. Yes, that works for us here in America currently. But again, I want you to zoom out and think that could be like some type of bone broth, fish broth, butter, yogurt. There are so many other tribal societies around the world that still use proper fermentation techniques with their milk. And yogurt is a big part of their a big part of their diet. I remember I was I wasn't living in Kenya, but I, I did uh, three weeks in Kenya. And I remember I was with the track team and one of the funnier stories was um, the cross country team would like go out and go on a jog every single morning. And one morning they were like jogging by this very kind family's little hut and they were like, you know, come inside, come inside. So our cross country girls like went inside to meet these, you know, very uh, like still third world um, tribal, tribal type of people. And they offered them their yogurt drink, which was the fermented milk, like in a pot. And, you know, they didn't want to offend them. So they drank the yogurt drink. Their guts were obviously not ready for that. And they had diarrhea the rest of the trip. It was terrible for them. But that was like one of my first personal experiences of being like, oh, milk doesn't have to be refrigerated to some extent. Please don't do that and then come after me. Okay. Don't get sick and then come sue me for whatever reason. Just this idea though, that, oh yeah, not everyone in the world has a refrigerator. How do they take care of their milk? How do they eat their butter? What does that look like? You know, my, uh, my in-laws were just in Europe for a little while. They went on a big cruise and they made fish stock because they were in an area that had a lot of fish. They didn't have red meat, but they had fish and they made fish stock. That's still considered animal based, but it's relative to the society and the culture in which those people are living and the terrain, um, homemade sausage. Think about like sausage casings, where that comes from. Think about like the practicality of hunting. We have a lot of people in America that still like to hunt venison. You know, they fish, they do all these different things. That is the idea of animal-based nutrition, not just I'm eating ground beef and only ground beef. No, 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 no. Again, that feels a little elitist. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. Another pillar of this quote-unquote animal-based nutrition that I like to talk about is understanding fermentation as, a, as food preparation and food preservation. 
So that goes alongside that kind of goes on the, you know, the gatherer side of things, the fruits, the berries, the uh, grains, the preparation of food, think sourdough, yogurt, sauerkraut, beer and wine, right? You read the Bible, they weren't drinking water. They were drinking, they were drinking fermented drinks because that's how they could maintain proper sanitation with their liquid drinks because water wasn't clean at the time. So that's the big idea. I'm not saying we need to go guzzle down some beer and wine, but just again, this bigger idea that we can't just be super dogmatic of drink your one gallon of water every single day. It's like, okay, well, you're depleting your, you're depleting your minerals at that point. So I digress. You get the picture. I hope you're understanding the picture at this point. Your, your freedom is found in food. And I, I, what I mean is food freedom, which a lot of people in the homegrown, homemaking space talks about, then what that looks like is we understand we are so confident in where our food is coming from. We have such a secure food system in our own acute, small, like more family way, right? Like we're so secure in where we get our food from that we don't need to actually think about food. So think about it this way, right? There's a pandemic. Shocker, right? You go to the grocery store. There's no meat at the grocery store. You know why there's no meat at the grocery store? Because there's a system going on. And the system is a little fragile. So when we have a pandemic, the meat doesn't get delivered because it's coming from international locations or it's coming from California or it's coming from all these places that are not local to you. But you know who boomed during the pandemic? Small local farmers. And the people that were already depending on those small local farmers had a very secure, small scale food system within their own home because they knew pandemic could happen, bad weather could happen, all these things could things could happen, but because they knew where their food was coming from and it was local enough, then they could work together and they could have, you know, the food delivered, the meat delivered, they, the crops were still growing. Like people were building gardens during the pandemic. Like that didn't, that didn't just go away because everyone had to stay home from work. Right. So like, that's what I want. I want a secure internal food system to my own house. That's what I want. Um, okay. Next thing. Every person can have this way of thinking about food from the poorest of the poor to the wealthiest. That's one of my bigger things. I get asked all of the time in person, you know, and I, I appreciate people asking me these questions, this particular style of question, but it also makes me realize I haven't, that's a reflection of me not explaining what I believe about animal-based nutrition enough because people are misunderstanding my thought process on it because people ask me all the time, okay, well, what about low-income families or what about, what about, um, people who can't afford meat or that's, that's usually the, the question. It's like, well, what about, you know, homeless shelters and all these different things. It's like, okay, totally understand. That question is posed within the standard American diet context. We are talking about the context of America. But again, zoom out third. How are third world countries living? How are they living? They're hungry. They're starving. But you give that, that tribal community a cow. 
that's going to look really different for them now. Now they have butter. Now they have milk. Now they have meat. Now they have fat. Now they have hooves. Now they have a hide. They have all these other things. So I recognize that's hard for us as Americans to understand, <clears throat> excuse me, how, to understand how, okay, well, it's like, well, I can't go to the homeless man down the street and give him a cow. It's like, well, obviously not. Let's use our brains a little bit. But what that could look like is teaching people at the very lowest level how to make their food stretch further, right? We're not just buying the plain white chicken breast out of the gross slimy tray. We're teaching people, you know what? You know how much it costs to buy a chick? Like I need to get my cousin on this podcast because she actually, um, we call her the chicken whisperer. She's amazing. She studied, she studied ag um, at OSU and she was the California state treasurer for FFA. She's amazing. I'm going to get her on here, the chicken whisperer, Shelby. If you listen to this, then get ready, girl. I'm going to ask you all the chicken questions. But think about it this, right? You give, let's say, a low-income family the ability and the tools and the means to raise their own chickens. Now, if you have leg, uh, uh, egg-laying hens, then you now have eggs, which are an incredible source of protein and fat. You have um, the ability to have meat chickens. Okay, you take that one chicken you learn the tools, how to butcher that chicken properly. Now you have meat. Now you have bones. Now you have organs. So you have chicken livers. You have all these such rich food products, but all it takes is teaching people how to make that food stretch further. I understand that like if you're living in a big city, you can't have your own chickens. If you're living in the suburbs, you can't have this like gigantic, amazing garden. I understand that. But if you could take a piece of this and make it relative to your own life, how are you going to make food stretch further? Again, instead of buying the slimy bleached white chicken breast, can you buy a whole organic chicken from a local farmer and, and learn how to roast it yourself with herbs that you grew yourself? And then you make bone broth and then you make a soup and then you, right? Like, like for example, I told you guys in the last episode, uh, my husband and I went camping, we went glamping out in Boone to prepare some food. What I did was I had an organic chicken that I bought. I did not buy it from a local farmer. I bought it from Fresh Market, but I bought an organic chicken, took that chicken and I roasted it with lemons, onions, carrots, butter, and herbs. Total probably cost me less than $20 because the chicken itself was like $16.99. And then all I needed was like lemon, one to two potatoes, one to two carrots, an onion, herbs and, and butter I already had, right? Less than $20. That chicken lasted us. <clears throat> so I roasted it, first of all. Then I took the bones, made a bone broth. Then I took the bone broth, made it into a soup. And then I put the chicken back in the soup. And that soup, we had like eight servings of that soup. And in the soup, it was chicken, bone, homemade bone broth, carrots, potatoes, and butter and water. Eight servings for less than, less than $20. That is Ladies and gentlemen, that is like $2.25 a serving. I just said fast math. I hope that's accurate. $2.25 a serving that was purely homemade. It was organic. It was made with such protein-rich ingredients. That's what I mean. That's what I'm talking about. Learn how to prepare your food properly. Learn how to make it stretch. Learn how to make your own bone broth. Don't waste your money. That's what I'm saying. Okay, now take it to the another degree, take it to a different, 
group of people. Again, if you live by the sea, you live in the Mediterranean, you have fish available. Learn how to make a fish stock. Learn how to make, you know, traditionally appropriate foods based on the foods that you have growing where you're at. If you don't have potatoes where you live, don't make potato soup. If you, but if you have like beautiful fruit, then learn how to make like these amazing, you know, jams with, with gelatin. Make, make all of these wonderful breads and pastries from local organic farmers where you get the grain from. You can learn how to mill your own flour. There's so many tools and skills that you can do that is in line with the quote unquote animal based nutrition. Okay. We're like 30 minutes in. And I just now got all of that out. Okay. Hold on five seconds. I'm going to grab a drink of water. Okay. Are we good? Thanks. Okay. Now let's talk about what it's not. Because I need to be real clear about this. What is animal-based not? Animal-based eating is not a dogmatic way of eating. I want to make that really clear. My husband always jokes with me. He's like, Kelsey, you got to be more dogmatic if you want more views on Instagram. I was like, that's not really my, that's not my goal. <laughs> I don't want to be dogmatic. Like that's the whole point. Like the more dogmatic you are, the more fearful people are about their food. It's the truth. I love some of the things that Paul Saladino says, but he's so dogmatic about things that it in turn on the flip side makes people more fearful of food. And I don't like that part of it. And I'm passionate about that part of it. So I'm not going to do it. So I'm not going to be dogmatic. What it's not, it's not carnivore. Carnivore means that you're eating animal-based foods exclusively. What did I just say? I said we're hunter-gatherers by nature. We need to have fruits and hopefully locally accessible fruits and learning how to do that. What it's not, it's not carb-fearing, which goes in line more with like the keto or carnivore. It's not. It's not, it's not, it's not. It's not carb-fearing. We're not cutting food groups. No, we're learning how to prepare our food properly. We're learning about the big biological ecosystem that is working around us. We are being ethical human beings with where we are sourcing things. What it's not, it's not an elitist nutrition idea that only the wealthy can achieve. That is my biggest, that is my biggest pushback against the vegan mantra. And I don't even care if people are going to come after me for this because it's the truth. Meat has been proven that if you give a, a poor third world country, tribe, family, whatever the case is, you give them animal-based products, that will be a form of them looking more wealthy to other people. So it is this ingrained idea naturally as humans that like if we have animals or if we have meat, then they're going to be more nourished. They're going to be more taken care of. That's an idea. But you flip that on the other end. You're, we're now in America where we have free uh, we have freedom to an, an insane degree. We can eat whatever we want. We can go to the grocery store. We can choose whatever we want, right? If we only want to eat cereal, we can only eat cereal. That's We have the freedom to do that because we now have a medical system that will take care of us if we only eat cereal and we get sick from eating cereal, then we just go to the hospital and we don't die because they take care of us. So it's this horrible way of of us not learning our consequences for eating certain ways. Um, but okay. So for example, you take, you take vegans, people who don't eat any animal products at all, whether for ethical reasons or because of nutritional reasons or environmental reasons, right? All of the reasons why I say that animals have to be a staple in our food system. They say very similar things, but on the other end of the spectrum, they say that is the reason why we should not, which again, I'm touching on a lot of different topics here, but also I think the root idea with vegans 
hey, maybe I'll have a vegan on the podcast. Who knows? The main idea, I think, if you boil it down to most vegans believe that we as humans are in line with the the rest of the animal kingdom, like we are no better or no less than like the cow down the street or the dog that is sleeping on her bed right by the Christmas tree, right? Like ethically or like as a being, we are no more or less than that other animal. But as a Christian, because we are made in God's image, we are set apart. So we have the ability to cultivate what we have around us. So that's my biggest pushback. It's like, okay, as a vegan, you could think that we're in line with animals, but I think that's just where we can agree to disagree because as a Christian, I believe I'm made in the image of God and I am set apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. Anyways, going back to the elitist nutrition ideas that only the wealthy can achieve. You take a vegan, for example, you can only get the B vitamins from animal-based sources. Hope you knew that. Also, cholesterol, you can only get cholesterol from animal-based sources and cholesterol is the backbone of all of your sex hormones. Hope you knew that too. So what that means is if you're going to choose to be a vegan because of environmental, ethical, or nutritional reasons, and you have to supplement those things, then you are, you are assuming then that people on the most poorest of levels, if you're saying that being a vegan means the most or matters the most or is the best way of living, but the poorest of poor cannot manage that because of the financial costs that it would take to supplement B vitamins or even talk about logistically, like think about people in Africa and all, all maybe in South America, they're not going to be in, you ask them to be vegan. They don't have the logistical way of getting synthetic B vitamins shipped to them in hopes that they are doing something ethically right. That's like putting the cart before the horse. I hope you get what I'm saying. Okay. It's not an elitist nutrition idea. It's getting back to that hunter-gatherer style where we understand how to cultivate the land. Okay. Now we're going to go over the food nourishing pyramid. This is made by me. I I need to brand this, honestly. I need to like sell it as a PDF or something because I branded it and this helps me navigate today's standard American diet. It would be so great if I could just say, go out. Don't, don't count your calories. You know, don't worry, just like go eat from the earth and go cultivate the land and go take care of your chickens. And it's like, that's great. But as Americans, I think it's like 75% of us are, or are obese. So we have to have some structure to have applicable steps forward. Hope we all understand that. Okay. My food nourishing pyramid is obviously a pyramid. It's a triangle at the very base of the triangle. I say that that's eating enough calories. The second level, so the middle level, is going to be eating the proper ratio of protein, carbs, and fats. And the very top level is my food sourcing convictions. So we're going to go over each of those levels. And in future podcasts, we'll break down these even further. Okay, first level, very bottom, which means it's the most important. It means the most on a priority level. Eating enough calories. At the end of the day, if you have a food sourcing ideology, if you, I'm sorry, if you have a nutrition ideology for yourself that, you know, you care about where it comes from or it's organic or it's not sprayed with pesticides or it's made from Susie down the road or whatever the case is, right? But you put that first before understanding you have to eat enough food, then you can fall into the trap of that elitist nutrition ideology because the reality is, can you take that to a third world country and say, you know what? Your food doesn't matter because it's sprayed with glyphosate. 
No, you cannot say that. Those people are starving. They need to eat enough calories, whether it's rice, whether it's boxes of cereal, whether it's lard, whether it's oranges. It doesn't matter. They need to eat enough calories. And on a basic human level, that's the same for us here in America. It, in my head, it doesn't matter if you could have the best, more or most locally organic, fresh sourced spinach. <laughs> you could eat pounds and pounds and pounds of that. But at the end of the day, you are under fueling on a very basic level of macro of macronutrients, like just pure calories, that your body's still going to be in a starvation state. And when your body's in a starvation state, especially for women, the first thing to go is your fertility, your fertility. And you ask me, hey, Kelsey, why does that matter so much? Why do you talk about that so much? It's because we're seeing a rapid decline in, um, in birth rate in fertile human beings in both men and women because of our food system here in America. Um, it's because if your fertility is not on track and you're in your fertile years or you're headed into menopause and you have crazy, terrible symptoms, that is like your fifth. How many vital signs do we have? I don't know. It's like your fifth four. So it's your fifth vital sign. I don't know. I should know this. I'm a professional. <laughs> it's your fifth vital sign, meaning if your fertility is not on track because of the choices you're making, not in some random necessarily like mutation, like you have a brain tumor because you were born with it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if you have influenced the way that your body handles its fertility because of your food choices or because of your lack of sleep or lack of exercise or because of the lack of way you have stewarded yourself, your body is in a quote unquote unsafe environment. Your fertility will tank and the way that you metabolize your food and the way that you sleep and the way that you digest food, all of that's going to be affected. It's a trickle down effect. So you have to look at your fertility, especially as a woman. Also, again, if you're going to use the hunter or gatherer idea, the agrarian society idea as a parallel for our life, you talk to any farmer and who on their farm out of all of their animals, who is the one they have to protect the most? Who's the most important? The females, right? They are the they are the, not the giver of life, but they are the producer of life, right? You could have a million bulls. I hope this is the right terminology. I'm sorry if you're a farmer. You could have a million bulls, but if you don't have a healthy heifer, guess what? You're not going to have a healthy population of cattle. It's, it's not how it works. So that you take that, you look at it within like humans in America, same thing. If our women are not healthy, we are going to have an undernourished and a sick sick population. So that's why eating enough calories, first and foremost, you have to be in a state of quote unquote abundance in a good way, abundance in proper macronutrients, abundance in micronutrients and minerals and vitamins. Your body is nourished. It's satiated. It's happy. That's what we want. That's going to look like having a proper menstrual cycle, sleeping seven to nine hours per night. Your body composition is appropriate. You have energy, you have a libido, you have regular bowel movements. That's what's quote unquote, being safe looks like. Unsafe is all the opposite effects of that. That's the bottom, the bottom part of the pyramid. You have to eat enough calories at a very basic level in order to set yourself up for that safe environment. Number two, proper ratio of protein, carbs, and fats. So what does that look like? Understanding our food, understanding our macronutrients. So I'm not saying you need to be a, on a dietitian level of understanding your protein, carbs, and fats, but what that does look like is you understand, okay, 
I'm getting my meat sources from my, if you, if you do care about your food sourcing convictions, then you can get your pro, you know, where your meat's coming from, you know, where your protein's coming from, you know, where your carbs are coming from and you know where your fat is coming from. But if you don't know your food, then you don't know your macronutrients. So on a basic level, there's, <laughs> it's knowing your food, right? Being intelligent, having you know, confident decision-making processes when you look in your fridge and when you go to the grocery store, you understand the proper ratio of protein, carbs, and fats. Also, this the, another thing I hit on when I have my clients and I'm talking about this second level of my food nourishing pyramid is this idea of the protein leverage hypothesis. The protein leverage hypothesis says that your body innately knows and understands how much protein it needs to eat per day. Protein is used only for tissue repairing and rebuilding, not for energy. So it knows how much protein you need to eat for proper tissue rebuilding and repairing that happens throughout the day. And it will continue to send out hunger signals until that protein need is met. So you can leverage this idea. If you eat an appropriate amount of protein, you will naturally eat less carbohydrates, eat less calories from fat, which in the long run then sets your muscle mass up for success. It sets you up for success when you go to bed every night because you're not hungry, you're satiated, you're happy, your digestion's on track. You have to leverage your protein. And then at the very tip of the food nourishing pyramid, you have your food sourcing convictions. And I care about this, right? I always talk about it when it comes to the animal-based ideology with your food, right? This food system that we're working towards then you should care. As humans, we have the ability to be ethical. So we should. God gave us that part of his, of his character to have ethical and moral decision-making skills. So we should. I feel so deeply about that. And um, we should look at our food from an ethical, environmental, and nutritional standpoint, right? So where are we getting our meat from? Are we getting it from an international, not great, not moral location? Are we getting our food from undernourished populations and they're working away so that I can eat my organic grass-fed fake labeled meat or am I pumping my own personal money into my local farmer who's a hardworking man or woman who cares deeply about cultivating the land? I care so much about food sourcing convictions that I have personally partnered with Harris Home Place Farm here in North Carolina. And if you are a Moore County local, I am plugging them because we have set up a pickup location at Forte Fitness. It's coming soon. I don't know when this podcast will be out, but you can check my Instagram. You can also check Forte Fitness's Instagram and you can check Harris Home Place Farm Instagram and website. You can order 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef and pasture-raised pork and chicken from Harris Home Place Farm. They're sixth generation farming family. And they do not use any chemicals on any of their property. They have an amazing story. They're an incredible people. I have visited them. They are my good friends now. Josh and Abigail are incredible. And um, I'm really excited about partnering with them in the future. Because again, if you're more County local, one of my dreams from Warren Company is to hold really cool dinner parties where I can highlight and I can um, bring in food producers that I align with on that ethical level and bring in a professional chef to prepare the food or teach us how to prepare that food properly. So it's like this, again, holistic idea, know where you're sourcing it from, understand how to prepare it, and then understand how to preserve it. Love it. Awesome. 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 I care so deeply about this. And that is why it is the second pillar 
of Warren Company. The strength training pillar is kind of a given because I'm a strength coach. Everyone understands that. But I think the animal-based nutrition or animal-based system, food nutrition system that I am constantly seeking, people don't necessarily understand because we do still have these dogmatic ideas about food. And I'm just trying to say, no, please just if if it works for if it works for you and you have a lot of money, but that's great. But does it work for the lowest level? And if you're really poor, does it work for the most elite level? Does it work in this holistic idea? Does it fit within that hunter gatherer style? Are we stewarding ourselves? Are we stewarding our land? Are we becoming more intelligent, more creative, more resourceful human beings? That's what I desire. Obviously, you can feel my passion behind this. I care so deeply about it. And that's why I have made it my second pillar. Um, but plot twist, I'm actually a terrible chef and my husband is a foodie. So please don't assume that I'm perfect. We actually eat out a lot. On the surface level, I could say that I am stimulating the economy by giving my dollars to the local uh, ramen joint, which is true. <laughs> I am still refining these areas in my life. So please, no, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm not a very good chef. Again, I've already described not a great homemaker. I don't enjoy cooking. I care about where my food comes from when I care about it. But when I'm in like this mindset of like me and my husband and we're like on a date, it kind of goes out the door. So I'm, there's areas to refine in me. You know, we're all on the same page. It's okay. But okay, plug Harris Home Place Farm. I'll link them in the show notes. Please look at them. They are an amazing family. Discount code is coming. They're incredible. Per usual, please uh, rate and review this podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you for listening in on my passionate ideas. This is exactly why I started my podcast, so I can process all of these nuanced ideas. You can watch along on YouTube, which again will be more interesting when I have my guests on and they're coming, I promise. So thanks for listening to the Heyo podcast and uh, I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.